You are now listening to the August 25th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. Hey listeners, I'm Jisoo King, your host for the History of the Biblio. Last time, we looked at the canonization of the New Testament. Used by the first churches, the New Testament was approved and canonized based on three standards, authorship, universality, and legitimacy. We also spoke of the pivotal role the Marcionists had on the canonization of the New Testament. Marcionists was a sect that only believed in a portion of the New Testament and rejected the Old. Their belief is what convinced other Christians that they should determine what doctrine to be true. This is what eventually led to the formalization of the canons. During those times, there were also many books published by people who disguised themselves as apostles. There were many different forces that distracted people from the truth of the Bible. Thus, in separating themselves from these false sects, early Christians were determined to set the Bible as their standard and stick only to the biblical truth. Such action could be seen as what allowed many persecuted Christians to remain true to their faith. The first mass-scale persecution of Christians occurred in 64 AD, when Emperor Nero ruled Rome. Nero blamed the Christians for the great fire of Rome, and Christians suffered greatly because of this. The Roman government confiscated Christians' properties and burned churches as well as any Christian texts. Nero also punished cruelly Christians who refused to bow to the emperor. And such persecution that began during Nero's reign continued for 200 more years. Burning of Christian texts and banning of Bibles continued during this time period as well. If Christians refused to turn over their texts, they were put to death. But some Christians put their lives on the line to preserve the Bible. Of course, Bibles are easy to access nowadays because it's available in many forms and there are multiple prints in each house. But back then, when each Bible had to be painstakingly hand-copied, Bibles were incredibly rare and valuable. If all Christians surrendered their Bibles during Roman times so that every existing copy was burned or destroyed, do you think the Bible would exist intact to this day? If it wasn't for the fact that the Holy Spirit resided within Christians of that time period, preserving the Bible despite such persecution would have been impossible. Just as recording the Bible was a result of God, preserving the Bible was also a work of God. The persecution against Christians that lasted over 200 years was put to an end when Constantine won the war and became Emperor of Rome in 312 AD. According to history, Constantine saw a cross looming in the sky before heading into his final battle. And within this cross was written, in rough translation, Through this sign you shall conquer. After winning the battle, Constantine ceased all persecution against Christians and designated Christianity as the state religion. 
Also, Emperor Constantine commissioned Eusebius of Caesarea to print 50 legible and accurate copies of the Bible on fine leather. Even early in the 300s AD, many Christians were killed for possessing the Bible. But within the short span of 20 years, the Bible became one of the most important texts of the Roman Empire. After enduring over 250 years of severe persecution, Christianity became the state religion and spread widely throughout the empire and elsewhere. With this, the Bible began to be translated into many different world languages. The first translation of the Bible occurred when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in 3rd century BCE. Do you guys remember the name of this translation? Yes, the Septuagint. This Septuagint was a version of the Old Testament used by Christians and is considered the most important translation of the Bible. Post-Septuagint, the most influential translation of the Bible is considered to be the Vulgate, a Latin translation of both the Old and New Testament by Hieronymus, or Jerome in English, in early 5th century AD. There were already many Latin versions of the Bible during the 4th century, but these translations were translations of the Septuagint, thus they were Latin translations of the Greek translation. But Hieronymus was determined to translate at least the Old Testament from the original Hebrew. So Hieronymus took on the Hebrew text, rather than the Septuagint, as the source language. The Vulgate, the result of Hieronymus's efforts, were used from then on as the main text of the Roman Church for over 1,000 years afterwards. And by the 6th century, the Bible was translated into Gothic, Syriac, Armenian, Coptic, Old Nubian, Ethiopic, Old Slavic, and Georgian. Among these languages were even languages that did not yet have a writing system. In order to translate into such languages, scholars needed to create alphabets. So certain biblical scholars created alphabets in order to translate the Bible. Even with these newly made alphabets, translating the Bible was probably not an easy task. In order to translate concepts and ideas as well as meaning, these scholars had to research and understand the culture behind the language. When they had to convey abstract ideas within the Bible, they had to create new words as well. Because such a translation process isn't something that can be done in a short period of time, these scholars probably couldn't have done this without a sense of duty and noble purpose. Because these translators were willing to endure difficulties in foreign cultures for the sole reason of spreading God's message and the Bible, we have the privilege of accessing the Bible today. God's truthful message, the Bible, exists and is being shared, translated, and taught by people of faith despite persecution and strife. The people who recorded the Bible, the people who read from and taught of the Bible, the people who put their lives on the line to preserve the Bible, the people who painstakingly translated the Bible, all of these people were transformed by the Bible and were thus willing to take on the duty of spreading this word of life. I pray that the Bible, stained by the blood and sweat of the many who sought to protect it, encoded in God's persistent efforts to share His truth with us, the readers, not only remains stagnant within us, but also flows far and wide. I pray we can experience such a blessing. We end today with this prayer. See you again next time. Goodbye.
trust the sweetest friend But holy trust in Jesus' name Come on, every voice My hope is built on nothing less Than Jesus' blood Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. 
Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Did you know that there is power in being sexually pure? And the opposite is also true. If if we are not sexually pure, then we don't have any power. There's power in even striving for sexual purity. Uh, this is, you know, this is how spiritual muscle is built. And there's power, man, there's so much power in repenting from sexual sin. If we choose not to guard our eyes, then it's impossible to guard our hearts. There's also a supernatural power and strength from having sexual integrity. By being and striving to be men and women of purity. And, and you know, purity is just another word for holiness. And holiness simply means that we're different, that we're set apart from this world that we live in. So if we say that we're Christian, but we're acting and we're doing and we're talking like the world, well, I would suggest that we've got a problem. Either we're being a disobedient son or daughter that just needs to repent and change our ways, or we just think we're a son or a daughter. And man, that's a dangerous place to be, thinking that we're a Christian when we're actually not. We got to remember that just because we say we're a Christian doesn't mean that we really are, because children of God look like God himself. If we're sons and daughters, we should look like our father, right? Well, in today's lesson, we're going to talk about the power of sexual purity. This teaching lesson It's from the last trigger in the sex spiral. It's trigger number 12, and it's called hopelessness. Now, hopelessness is not a good place to be. You've heard my story, or part of it anyway. Uh, the, The sex spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, the bondage, or the addiction to pornography. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how guilt without a solution, it leads to a loss of hope. Number two, how the grace of God through trust is able to break the sex spirals power. It's able to break the addiction. Trust is able to break the bondage. And number three, we're going to ask this question. Do you really truly want to be healed? Do you truly want to be free from your bondage to pornography. Are you willing to do whatever it takes for that to happen? So let's get started with today's lesson. It's titled, The Power of Sexual Purity. I mean, how many jobs can someone have before they fall short of of putting a gun in your mouth? For me, it was nine. Nine jobs in 18 months. 71% of you in this room have thought about suicide. Why? Because guilt without a solution leads to hopelessness. If there's no solution to this, if there's no hope, if nothing's going to change, why should I not kill myself? I just had a dear brother two months ago swallow a bunch of pills and kill himself. He used to work for the church. Went to Bible study with him, groups with him. Man, are you kidding me? You killed yourself 
You got married last year? Why? Because he's hurting, right? There's a, there, you're living out of your pain, but there's no hope. It's not about truth. It's not about how much you guys know. It's not. It's not about how much you guys know. It's about hope. And Jesus Christ is hope. As we finish out the spiral, I hope that you guys have learned about the grace of God. That this spiral, as powerful as it is, because it's very powerful, right? That as it's lived out in the lives of millions of people every day, it's the grace of God through trust that will actually break this spiral. And that's my encouragement to you, is that you don't have to stay where you guys are, no matter where you are. Everybody's in a different spot tonight. Sexual sin does not define us, but if we don't understand when and how to respond to sinful triggers, it will. And guys, there's no exceptions. You're either living in the flesh or you're living in the spirit. Romans 8.5 says, Those who are dominated, dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that, are, that please the Spirit. Put another way, there's power in your purity. If you don't have purity, we don't have any power, do we? Purity is just another word for holiness. So there's no neutrality. There, no one skips through these trigger points and, and getting to certain places. For the most part, the, these are the trigger points that we go through. Some of us think, ah, it just happens too quickly. And, but if you go back and you analyze the last time that you've sinned and you've acted out and you use that sheet as a timeline, you'll see how each one of those triggers in John 5, Jesus answers, he asks this question to a paralyzed man who was waiting by a pool of water. He says, do you want to be healed? And the guy starts making excuses. Ah, oh, I can't get to the water. Ah, oh, no one will help me. He's been there for 30, 20 or 30 years. I forget what it is. Been there a long time. Maybe not every day. But he had no hope of being healed. And in the grace of Almighty God, he heals him. A whining, complaining. He was broken spiritually, mentally, physically. He just wasn't hurt physically. And by God's grace, he just healed him. He didn't even ask for it. He just said, get up. Jesus said, get up. If that's not the grace of Almighty God, I don't know what is. And when you confess your trigger to God and your brother in Christ, before you choose to sin, that's what we want, right? It's for you guys not to use each other as a, a Catholic priest to confess sin, but to call and, and reach out for help. You know, my prayer is that, they, uh, that when you go to church next weekend, that at least we'll come a little bit closer to addressing the issue. I'm working on them, guys, just so you know. All right. We're based on you know, truth and grace, which is, comes from the Gospel of John chapter 1. Jesus Christ is, is all truth, and He's all grace. We tend to fluctuate on being too, too much truth. You need to be doing this, right? God, don't worry about it, man. It's, you know, God will forgive you. We, we, we go from one side to the other. Jesus Christ was both those. So... The, the counseling side of this is very important. 
It's pretty cool to hear the feedback of the men in this class as we finish this series out, isn't it? One gentleman talked about the power of community, the, the power of being intentional. And, you know, ultimately, he's, he's talking about the power of striving to be sexually pure. We're to continue to hear more of the members of this class. What did they learn? And how are they applying these lessons to their own life? There is much for us to gain by listening to these guys and seeing how God is using them and this material to change their lives. So how about you? What have you learned and how are you applying this material to your life today? Have you noticed that everything is a choice? I talk about that a lot. Everything is a choice. Uh, No one's making us do anything. That we choose life by walking away from this test or we willfully choose death by submitting to the temptation of pornography. Ladies, have you learned if you're married, your husband, or maybe if you're dating someone, your boyfriend's porn addiction, have you learned that it's not your fault? That it doesn't matter how beautiful or thin or how well-built you are. It's not your fault. It doesn't matter if he blames you or not. That's just a smokescreen. See, you can't compete with his pornographic fantasies. That's why they're called fantasy. It's imagining things that are impossible or improbable. Sexual fantasies are fiction and they have very little to do with reality. It's unrestrained delusion that borders on hallucination. It really is. And that's why it's so important for you to get the help that you need to process this pain that you're going through, regardless of whether or not he wants help. The first step I would encourage you to do is to pray uh, for the Lord to lead you to a women's group that specializes in sexual sin. It's so important for you to process this pain with other women. Lastly, Guys, I want to suggest that you do something today to stop causing your wife pain uh, if you're married. Stop causing your fiance pain, your girlfriend pain. For you to stop beating uh, your wife with an emotional baseball bat. For you to stop beating your girlfriend, your fiance, with your evil choices. You have the ability to make a godly choice. You really do. And your first choice is to put an internet filter on all of your digital devices. This will show this person in your life, your wife, your girlfriend, your fiance, that you're serious about making changes. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. If you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. I would love to meet you face-to-face. This is a group that focuses on healthy sexuality. It's for everybody. Men, women, single, divorce, everybody is welcome. You are invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We're in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at PurityPastor. And you can email me your questions. Just visit DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the Apostle Paul writes, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living. 
being and doing. It's living in God's power. And that power is in the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior God.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their life. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Baptism based on Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. This morning we're back in our Churchology series where we've been thinking through the church, studying the church, and this morning we have come to the um, doctrine of baptism. And so we're going to be thinking about baptism this morning. Lots of views, but three I think that are helpful to think about. Uh, The first is the Roman Catholic view. They actually consider it to be one of their seven sacraments because they believe that it actually is a sacrament where you enter into the water, which mysteriously will actually work in the person that dips in the water to bring about a movement of the Spirit and regeneration. Well, that's different. They baptize their infants, and that means that they are part of the visible church. But that's different than another kind of infant baptism, and that's the kind that you find amongst Protestants. So Protestant baptism, like you would find in a Presbyterian church, is paedo-baptism or infant baptism that understands that what they are doing is really roughly synonymous with what you find Israel doing in the Old Testament. You would circumcise young Israel boys in eight days, and that represented the fact that they were part of the visible people of God. And so they baptized babies, and that pictures them as being part of the visible people of God. Now hear me, that does not mean that they are united with Christ in their view. You can be a part of the church and not be united with Christ. But what's fascinating is in both of those views, baptism is entrance into the church and incorporates you into the people of God. Well, the same is true with what we would call the credo-baptist view, the word for creed or or statement of faith. Uh, That view is the view that Trinity has held uh, since her beginning, as far as I know. And it's this view that we believe that the church is actually made up of regenerate people, people who have been born again as they have heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit has raised them to newness of life, and they are baptized as an outward display of that inward reality of what God has done in circumcising their hearts. Now that view too comes from a vision of how they understand the church. See, they baptize believers because they believe that the church is actually made up of regenerate folks who have been born again. So the church isn't believers in their kids or kind of some who think they're Christians and maybe others aren't. They expect that their church membership, as far as they can tell with human eyes, reflects heavenly membership they will see one day in heaven. And that's the view that our church is held to and holds to. But notice that every historical view has understood the Bible to teach that baptism is the doorway into the church 
And the theology of baptism is intimately interwoven into the way that we understand the nature of the local church. And so I'm praying that as we unpack what God's Word says about baptism, that the Holy Spirit will help us value this doctrine as much as Jesus does. And so I want to begin with Jesus this morning in Matthew 28. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn there. That's going to be our base text where we are spending much of our time. Matthew 28. And we're really going to be focusing on just three verses, 18 to 20. And you can turn there as we get started. Let me ask for the Lord's help this morning. Will you pray with me as we get started? Father, this morning we come before you and we praise you. We praise you because we know that your Son, Jesus Christ, is an authority over heaven and earth. All things visible and invisible are under the reign, the sovereign reign of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died and rose victoriously and ascended to the right hand of your throne where he now sits interceding for us. Father, we ask this morning as we come before you that your Spirit would help us to see and to understand what your Word has to say. Not men's inventions, but what your Word has to say about who you are and how your people should live together. Do this to the glory of your name, we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that I want us to see in Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is this. Our cosmic king, Jesus, tells us to baptize Christians. Cosmic king, Jesus, tells us to baptize Christians. You'll remember Matthew's whole gospel, his book, introduces Jesus as the king who has come to reign over God's kingdom. That's what we find in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew 28 begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and ends in verses 18 to 20 with the Great Commission, verses we're looking at. And I want you to take note of three things here. First, that baptism is an issue of obedience. Second, baptism displays conversion. And third, baptism is the sign of the new covenant community. We'll go through those one by one. So first this, baptism is an issue of obedience to the cosmic king. We find that in verse 18. Notice how he begins his great commission. He says this in verse 18, where Jesus came to them, to the disciples, and said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But by virtue of His death, His burial, and His resurrection, God has revealed at this point that Jesus is the cosmic King. He is King of heaven and earth. And we find later in Colossians that He is also Lord over every molecule. All things are under the reign of King Jesus. His kingdom knows no ends. It knows no bounds. Jesus reigns over the billions of people that are scattered throughout our planet, which is one of many billions of planets and many billions of galaxies with many billions of stars throughout the universe, as well as innumerable creatures, both seen and unseen in spiritual realms. And it's from that throne that he claims all authority has been given to me by my Father. Now just to dredge up a, an old word to describe this kind of authority that we spoke of last week, it's the word imperium. God has given Jesus Christ imperium or absolute authority. The buck stops with Jesus. When my kids want to do something, they know that the buck stops with dad. Unless dad says no and they go to mom. 
But when you're thinking about Christ, there is no other authority or workaround to get what you desire apart from Christ. And sin will never get you there. But don't miss this. Whatever follows from verse 18 flows from Jesus' appeal to His authority over all things. And catch where Jesus decides immediately to flex His muscles of authority. He does it in discipleship. He says, that's what I want you to think about when you think about my authority and what I've called you to. I want you to think about discipleship. Second, you'll notice that baptism not only is an issue of obedience to Jesus, but baptism displays conversion. Displays conversion in in verse 19 and 20. Look there with me again at what he says in verses 19 to 20. He says this, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you've probably heard that there really is in this verse, in these two verses, verses 19 and 20, just one main imperative verb, the verb to make disciples. And then there are these two words that are participles that that hang off of it, that describe how it is that we're to make disciples. And he gives two words. The first is baptizing them, and the second is teaching them. So you baptize new believers and you teach new believers. That's what it means to make a disciple. Now you'll notice that discipleship, of course, is of first importance to Jesus. And if you look up the Greek word for make disciples, uh, you'll discover that it really just means to make a pupil, or it's someone who is an adherent of a teacher, someone who follows a teacher. That's what a disciple is. And here, of course, in context, it's King Jesus. So if you want to be a disciple, you follow Jesus. A disciple here is someone who is observing or obeying Jesus's teachings. A disciple is not what some would say a kind of elite Navy SEALs-like subgroup of Christians. A disciple is not meant to sort of compartmentalize a special kind of believer. It is actually the only kind of believer. It's basic but true Christianity. And so when we see here that there is a call to make disciples, it's really a call to make Christians, people who are living under the reign of King Jesus in the kingdom of King Jesus. Now, if you reinsert this definition of disciple to follow the teachings of Jesus, these verses might actually sound a little redundant. I mean, think about it. It would say something like, one makes followers of Jesus' teachings by baptizing them and teaching them to observe Jesus' teaching. Why did Jesus, in this moment, need to tell them to baptize when that would surely be included in teaching them all that I have commanded? But why of all things pick out, oh, and then this special thing, baptism, that I've commanded you to do? Well, not only that, we have to ask ourselves is what makes baptism here so unique that it needs to be set apart like this? Is it most important or is it the first step of discipleship? You know, here I believe what's going on is baptism. It actually stood for a kind of metonymy for conversion. Now, I know metonymy is like a very hard word. I had to look it up myself. But it's a word that means an expression that stands for something that it is associated with. So baptism is associated with conversion. And that's why baptism stands for, actually here, conversion. Baptism. 
When somebody says that you are saved by baptism, it's not saying that baptism saves you, that you believe in baptismal regeneration. If you're thinking biblically, what it means is baptism is so associated with what it means to become a Christian that to say that, to ask someone when they were converted, uh, it would be okay for them to say they were baptized. In fact, I believe that if you were to ask a first century Ephesian when they were converted, they just might have responded, I was baptized in Ephesus in 58. Now, you wouldn't have to stop and correct their theology there because you would know that they weren't speaking literally. They were speaking figuratively of the idea of when they came to Christ. Now, why would they do that? Because baptism stood so closely to conversion that one assumed the other. In fact, Jesus says, baptism marks when one has transferred from the nations to the kingdom of God. And Jesus didn't have a concept of a non-baptized Christian. The early church didn't have a concept of that. That didn't mean that they didn't believe that somebody could be a Christian without getting baptized. It was just that Christians got baptized. Now, please don't miss this. I am not saying that you can't be a believer and not be baptized. I know many of them who love Jesus. And I'm not saying that you can't delay baptism until the next baptismal service or to give time a new convert prior to baptism. There are reasons sometimes to delay But Jesus understands baptism to be so closely associated with conversion that baptism stood for conversion. Now, I know when you hear this, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, I feel like I've got these red legalism flags sort of flying all over my mind and going crazy. I mean, are you saying that we need to get baptized if we are Christians? I want to say that if that's your question, I think we want to deal with Jesus on that. And what does Jesus say here in Matthew 28? In Matthew 3 and elsewhere about baptism. What does God's Word say? I think here, what we need to understand is Christians are baptized Christians. Uh, it is important if you're a Christian to be baptized. And if you get that, I don't think that you're going to have trouble with some really difficult texts that are going to mess with you in the New Testament. Like when you come to 1 Peter three twenty-one, and Peter says, baptism now saves you. Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, Peter is a legalist. I mean, I like Paul better and Jesus. That sounds like legalism. That's just confusing. And it is unless you understand what Peter means. He is saying that Peter is reflective of conversion. It's not salvation in the sense of washing of dirt from the skin, but it's an appeal of a good conscience. When we are baptized, we are declaring publicly that we have trusted Christ and follow Him. See, after Peter preaches Christ crucified at Pentecost, the Jews ask what they must do to be saved, to which Peter responds in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, is that legalism? Well, not if we understand the first century Christian and the way they understood baptism as a shorthand for conversion. Could it be that we just don't treat baptism as serious as we should? And maybe we as churches need to do a better job of teaching the importance of baptism. Well, there's a third thing that we see here, and that's this. Baptism is the public sign of the New Covenant community. Now, you'll notice also that they baptize these folks into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we look at Matthew 3, we find the baptism of Jesus, which is actually different than our baptism. See, Jesus told John the Baptist to baptize him. If you look there in Matthew 3... You'll notice that tells the story of when John the Baptist actually baptized Christ. And you'll remember that Jesus says that he had to have John baptize him 
to fulfill all righteousness. And we don't have time really to spend a lot of time on this, explaining and unraveling what that means, but I think that at least Jesus is obeying John's call to be baptized as a last Old Testament prophet. Remember he said, you need to come out and be baptized as a prophet of God. And Jesus is submitting to the Word of God. Now I think there's more to that, but at least that. But he also needed to be baptized to establish the sign of the new covenant. So you remember that he, he's been baptized, as he's baptized in Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17, we see this scene where the heavens open up. And as the heavens open up, the Spirit of God descends down from heaven and it rests upon Jesus, the eternal Son of God, taken on flesh in Christ. And as that happens, you hear the voice of God crying out from heaven saying, this one, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I haven't been happy with people in a really long time, but this guy, he's different. He's my Son. Is Jesus is actually being anointed as King. See, this is referencing here a fulfillment of Psalm 2, verse 6. This psalm that comes... And it is praising the coming Messiah. And this coming Messiah who would be a king over the people of God, there God says to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. See, baptism signaled a new creation with a new king and kingdom who would usher in a new and better covenant. And Jesus' baptism launched his public earthly ministry. That's when Jesus went public with who he was. It was at his baptism. He just demonstrated after that his authority in his many miracles and his otherworldly authority as he healed the sick and forgave sins. So that new covenant, it would later come and be sealed with his blood on the cross where he himself died, not only as the priest, but as the sacrifice in our place for our sins as the good king and shepherd of our souls rescuing us from the just wrath of God. See, when Jesus was raised from the dead, He told the disciples to baptize people out of every nation into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now back to Matthew 28, 19. Circumcision was the sign of joining the people of God in Israel under the old covenant. And when God enters into the covenant with His people, He is actually, what He's doing is He's identifying Himself With his people, he's saying, I am with you and you are with me. In fact, you'll remember whenever he sends the Mosaic covenant and gives that to his people Israel, he tells them, I will be your God and you will be my people. Do you see that? He's he's saying, we are living in intimate relationship with one another. Now you remember from last week that God has always manifested his glory through embodied communities of real people. From Adam and Eve to Israel to the local church. And baptism is a a sign that one is truly part of Christ and His physical, visible people or coming under the Lordship of. See, baptism is a sign of both entrance into the Messiah's covenant community and of pledged submission to His Lordship. So baptism is the public sign of joining the new covenant people of God with Jesus as their head, as their King. Now, Christians are baptized in the name of the triune God as a public, outward sign of union with King Jesus and His people. It's going public with your faith, as Bobby Jameson says. So the local church makes a statement 
about the faith of the person baptized as the person being baptized is making a statement about their faith. Now let me just say, this is meant to be an instrument of God in your life for assurance. I mean, just think about this. We're going to have four folks today who are getting baptized. And what we are saying with you, brothers and sister, is that we believe your testimony that you are of Christ and His people. We affirm that. We want to encourage you to be assured that you really are part of the people of God. Not only are you saying it, we are saying it together. Isn't that good assurance? I think so. But in Christian baptism, the local church baptizes you as an exercise of the power of the keys that's given to the church in Matthew 16, where he says, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. There's a real connection between what you are doing here on earth spiritually and what is true of your future in heaven. So baptism is a practice of the local church binding people on earth as an earthly manifestation of the heavenly kingdom on earth. See, this is to say that you are part of the new covenant people of God. Now here's the important thing to note. God has always put His name on a people. So an individual puts their faith in King Jesus, and King Jesus has a kingdom presently seen by humanity in the local church. Now I know here some will hear this and they will say, you know, but my dad baptized me in the bathtub. Or I was baptized at a youth camp. So are you saying that I need to get baptized again? I just want to be really clear. I, I don't want, as a pastor, to cause people to needlessly question their baptisms. And I don't like to rebaptize people. We usually, as we have folks come in, we really are concerned about their consciences and never want to make people do something against their conscience. We want consciences to be educated by the Word of God, to obey the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit leads in. I'm simply trying to express here that what Jesus had in mind when he talked about baptism, and I want to express that in this sense, I want all of us to grow in our understanding of how we should think about the practice of baptism going forward. So I find a Christian instructional manual from long ago to be helpful in this conversation. At least I always have. Maybe you don't, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. So in about 100 AD, there was this Christian manual called the Didache, and in it, they actually had a description and explanation about baptism and how a church should practice it. And what's fascinating is they said, basically, as you baptize someone, what's preferential, what's best, is if you use running water or living waters. That's what they called running waters, living waters. And if you don't have living waters, you can use still waters. And if you use still waters, it's better if they're cold than warm. But if you don't have cold water, you can use warm water. And if you don't have enough water, then you can splash them three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then that's sufficient. Here's what I like about it. What they're trying to say is, is that we're trying to just talk about what we think are best practices according to what we see in the Bible. And that's exactly what we are called to do as a local church, is to actually say, what does it look like the Bible is clearly doing as the best practices? And our best practices are meant for today. They're not meant to go back in history and fix everything. They're meant for today. How are we going to move forward and live as a people of God? And so I don't agree with these categories. I actually don't like water cold. I like it warm. But I do agree that there is a sense in which looking back there is a base meaning of what is a normative practice. And that's all we're trying to speak of when we speak of baptism. Were you baptized on a profession of faith or not? I think that's kind of important. If you're a professing believer, and you believe yourself to be baptized as a believer. And not only that, 
does your conscience affirm that you were baptized as a believer? Because that's really important too. If so, you know, we don't want to discourage you. We also don't want to pass exceptions to set the rule for normal practices in the church. So there are always going to be ways in which we miss perfection. I don't know if y'all knew this, but individuals aren't perfect and churches aren't perfect. And we actually are just trying to be faithful with who God's brought us to be and called us to be. So we understand baptism is something that the local church does for professing believers, regularly done by the mode of immersion. We dunk people here. You'll see that today. In fact, you might want to watch this zone. Like, because sometimes there's, like, when we really dunk them, there's, like, a splash out. You might get in the wet zone. Y'all might want to move later. Fine now. But we baptize by immersion. And catch this. I think there's something significant that happens between Jesus' last words here and his ascension in Acts 1. So, if you will, turn with me real quick to Acts chapter 2, because I believe that Matthew 28, it tells you about what the resurrected Lord does with baptism, but I think we need to see what the ascended Lord does in Acts chapter 2. And I'm just going to catch you up to speed to sort of move us forward to where we need to go. So I'm going to give you a little bit of biblical theology here real quick. First is, you need to remember as we're about to read from Acts 2, that God has promised that He is going to give His people a new and better covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. His prophets often speak of this covenant. Jeremiah says that in this covenant you're going to get new hearts. My people will have new hearts because that's really the core of what their problem is with obedience to me. They need an internal change. They circumcised their flesh. Israel did. But God promises there coming a day when He's going to do something more, He Himself will circumcise their hearts. He's going to change their hearts. He was going to bring about a new creation in them. He had to if they were going to be a new people and experience God's good new covenant. Then Ezekiel 36 tells us about this covenant. He said that God would also put His Spirit within them. So circumcision of the heart, a new heart, the reception of the Holy Spirit, those are all pictures of what this new covenant would bring. And then I love the picture in Joel 2.28 where he says that on that day, God is going to unleash His Holy Spirit on all flesh. Speaking of all people, which we know from the New Testament to mean all nations. And so this covenant is coming. Now Galatians 3 does a great job of actually putting all these ideas together in the context of the reality of what baptism means. But we don't have time for that. What we do have time for is this. After Jesus ascended at Pentecost, God sent His Spirit upon His people. And Jesus, King Jesus, at Pentecost, when He unleashed His Spirit on His people, King Jesus went up and then sent the Holy Spirit down. And the Spirit rushed upon the Jews, gathered there from the nations to worship during this season. And Peter said that those new covenant promises in the Old Testament... They had arrived with the long-awaited heart circumcision and gift of the Holy Spirit. And when they had heard this in Acts chapter 2, these people cried out, What shall we do? Isn't that a great question to hear from somebody who is not a believer, who hears the gospel, and they say, "What, What do I need to do? This is a question that's happening in Mass at Pentecost. And here's how Peter responds in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Catch what happens in verse 41. 
So those who received his word were baptized. They were baptized. And notice immediately what happens. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls to their number. And then in 42, you'll notice that right after that, they believed God. They received the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized. They've been added to the number. And then what are they doing? They're gathering around the teaching of the word and practicing communion together in verse 42. Normal arrangement that we see throughout the Bible and throughout the history of the church. And then in verse 42, we find that after they do that, we get a picture of what baptism signals. And here's what baptism signals, just to wrap this up. It signals that we have been born again, receiving the promised circumcision of hearts that circumcision of the flesh pointed to. Baptism tells us that we are the first fruits of a new creation with a new king and a new kingdom. So that the Holy Spirit indwells in us and it actually seals us for the last day. The Holy Spirit progressively transforms us from one degree of glory until the next Until that lay hold of that inheritance of an immeasurable weight of glory that awaits us. And what a good thing that the baptism actually represents for us. But also notice that baptizing added them to the number such that 120 people in Acts 1 who were waiting for the Spirit became 3,000 souls in Acts 2. See, baptism displayed being added to God's visible people. But it also pictures union with Christ and His burial and resurrection. So in Romans 6, 4, it says that we were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So in a minute, when we baptize these folks, we will be submerging them, baptizing, saying you were buried with Christ, and then we'll raise them up and saying raised to newness of life. In other words, all that our King has and does is accredited to us. That is incredible news, brothers and sisters. Everything that is Christ is ours. We receive the new covenant benefits of Christ's sacrificial death and the promise of a glorious future, of a day when we will be receiving this this call to walk in newness of life. See, this newness of life, hang in with me, comes with a new heart for a new people in a new creation with a new king in a new way of life who await a new heavens and a new earth. Baptism is glorious and meaningful. Now why wouldn't you want to put your faith in Christ and get baptized and be part of that? So if you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you've not been baptized, let me encourage you to talk with me or one of the other elders after the service to discuss more about how you can do that. But I have some questions I want to answer as as we close up. I have a few questions about baptism. I know we've had a lot of questions, and so I want to answer some of these. And maybe I'll create some new ones that we can talk about later. But let's go ahead and and look through some of these first. How old do I need to be to be baptized? That's a great question. I know that some churches have set a, a limit on the age of baptism, and our elders spent a good bit of time praying and thinking through this. And as far as we can tell, we didn't see any clear indication in the Bible that there's an age limit on baptism, and so we decided not to set one. But we do appreciate the conviction of heart that we do need to see these other realities in a person that baptism points to, like the presence of the Holy Spirit, the circumcision of heart, committedness to walk in newness of life. 
And not only that, we decided that we really don't believe that if you want to be a Christian, whether you are 8 or 80, there is some kind of halfway sort of plan for Christianity so that you can sort of partially partake or sort of halfway partake. We look at the New Testament, it seems like either you're in the new covenant in the kingdom or you're not. And so we encourage everyone that wants to put their faith in Christ to come to one of our connections classes where we tell you about the gospel and what it means to be part of the people of God. And then we encourage you to meet with a couple of pastors where we hear your testimony and make sure you understand the gospel. And then we set up a time to baptize you after we, of course, present you before the congregation. So just so you know, like if you want to become a Christian, there's no halfway way to do it. We want you to come to Christ and to be baptized. There's a second question, though, that we have, and that's this. It's, is it bad to delay baptism? Now, I would just say that depends on why you're delaying baptism. Uh, so just so you know, I know that some people are like into instant immersions and like, let's just do it like right now. I just met you and um, I've actually seen that happen before. I've even seen somebody baptize someone who they didn't even know the language the other person spoke but they were sort of at the Jordan and like everybody was doing it. And they're like, I want to get, you know, the thing. And they're like, yeah, let's just do this. And I would just say that that's not necessarily the best way, the most thoughtful way to go about baptism. In fact, I think that, that really what the Bible says is we want to see the Holy Spirit at work. And so if you're waiting on baptism, I would just say, you know what? Some churches historically have done that. In fact, in the first, I think, century, second century, we have evidence that some churches only baptize like once a year on uh, Easter. And so you would always, you know, think about it. You came to faith on Easter, and you're like, man, i got to wait a whole year. But through that year, they would actually teach them more about Christ and what it meant to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which I would say you need to know at least something about what that means, right? And also what it means to be part of the people of God and what it means to to take on some of the, the benefits and responsibilities of being a Christian and being part of the people of God. And that is all a picture of disciples, which is what we are looking to make, not just converts, but disciples who follow Jesus and His teaching. There's a third question. Am I not a Christian if I am not baptized? I am not saying that you are not a Christian if you are not baptized. You may not be, but I don't know. If you put your faith in Christ, you are a Christian. But I would ask you some questions like, why would you wait to be baptized, or why would you not want to be baptized if you're a Christian And Jesus says, with all authority in heaven and on earth, I want disciples to baptize new converts and teach them to obey me. And the things they need to obey are first, I just said baptism. So just think about it. Why would I not want to be baptized if I'm a Christian? Fourth, do I need to be baptized to take communion? Well, we're going to answer that next week. But for now, just think about two things that I think should be clear. First, the normal pattern was faith and baptism, then being added to the membership of the body where they would take communion regularly. So those living in unrepentant sin would be cut off from the communion with the church, which visibly depicted that someone was no longer living in the domain of King Jesus. So it was a visible picture of the fact that on the inside, we are part of the kingdom of God. On the outside, it's the kingdom of the devil. Those are the two zip codes that God has in mind. So here's the encouragement towards the people of God. If you're on the inside living in faithful friendship and fellowship with the local church, it is a constant assurance and encouragement that you are walking with the Lord and that your future is incredibly bright, even if right now things look dark. But if you're on the outside, the encouragement is, don't get comfortable out here. Like the weather's good in the local church where God is at at work amongst His people. Don't you want to live with the people of God, knowing that you're part of the future that awaits all of them? Fifth, what if I have not practiced in this way in the past? 
Well, can I tell you, there are so many things that as a preacher, I have to study week in and week out and realize something's got to change. That's kind of my normal disposition as a Christian. I think that God wrote his word and sent his son and has given me his Holy Spirit to help me because I actually needed help. Anybody here think you have the Holy Spirit because you're like, you're already right and the Holy Spirit just wants to hang out with you because you're so awesome? Like, I'm sure that's part of it. But I think most of it is, man, it's going to take a lot of work and this is an inside job. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can't just like rearrange the stuff on the outside. We got to get in the guts of the stuff. There's got to be some wood change. This roof's going to collapse if we don't do something soon. That's what the Holy Spirit does with me. And I think that's what the Holy Spirit's doing with you, whether it be baptism or anything else that the Word of God teaches about. And number six, if I have not been baptized, what do I need to do? Get baptized. Well, I think we're done here. I hope this has been helpful. Um, I'm grateful that we do have an all-authority-given reigning king who loves us, who gave himself for us to purchase his church and his people, to wrap us in his love and to change and transform us from one degree of glory to the next by the power of his spirit. What a glorious God we have. Father, this morning we come before you and we praise you that you are a God who is at work. And we see this evidenced even in the fact this morning that we have four folks who we are baptizing. Father, this is to the glory of your name. We thank you that we get to, as a people, affirm what it is that they are saying. That they are saying and committing their lives that they, are, that they are under your reign. That they belong to live in a way that is evidenced by the fact that they have been redirected from a journey that was running headlong into hell to a, a journey that is running uh, towards a new heavens and a new earth where you reign forever for our good and for your glory. And so God, we pray that as we do this, that Lord, you would be glorified and magnified. Perhaps even there are some here today that have not been baptized, who have not put their faith in Christ, who have not joined a local church, that you would prick them to the heart and let them know that these stories they're about to hear could be their story too. So in your name we do pray. Amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.